Friday nights at 9 p.m. It's time to sit back, relax, and play conspiracy bingo with Echoplex Media. We've curated the best conspiracy theorists the internet has to offer and turned it into a live bingo game you can play for free with absolutely no prizes but bragging rights. You won't find a live stream like this anywhere else, and that's probably better for everyone else's mental health. Tune in every Friday at 9 p.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash echoplexmedia and find our full schedule at echoplexmedia.com. All of a sudden, we can't talk about Neanderthal DNA anymore. I'm white and I've got everything I need. No one clutches their presses when they're in a room alone with me. And I can drive for any neighborhood I please. At any hour, and the police don't do a thing. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I got everything I need. I'm a guy getting paid more than a girl with a degree. And I can walk down the streets after dark, no one wants to rape me. And I can get a girl pregnant and just as easily flee. Just like my straight white male dad did to me. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I've got all the luck I need. Got a pile of broken mirrors and I'm walking under ladders And I'm spilling tons of salt But to me that doesn't matter Cause my skin and my gender and my orientation Are the best things to have if you live in this nation I recommend it highly So if I see a penny on the ground I leave it alone and fucking flip it I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need Shit's gonna work out for me Cause I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need Alright everybody, welcome to the Intellectual Dollar Tree We do the show live every Wednesday at 7pm Pacific Right here on Twitch That's twitch.tv slash echoplexmedia HK is on adventures tonight So it's just me, Dave, uh, homo, alono Um you can support this project at equiplexmedia.com slash support. There's all kinds of ways to do it. Um, be like Marcus. Be like Homo Zygote. Pick up one of our new Live, Laugh, Lucifer, Satanic, Panic items. I believe Marcus picked up the wine tumbler. Because, you know, sometimes you got to be basic and worship the Dark Lord. <clears throat> also, there's just all kinds of other stuff at equiplexmedia.com. You can check out for us. And um, make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Or if this is your first time listening, maybe you can decide later whether or not you want to do that. Because who knows? You might not even like this shit. Anyway, I'm Producer Dave. You can find me on Grindr. Um, so we're going we're gonna to stay in our general realm, but we're going to leave our usual cast of characters. It's not like these are people we've never covered on the show. It's just like these are not like the usual cast of characters. The host of the thing we're about to listen to, I'd, I'd say watch, but there's no a video for it, I don't think. I think it's just an audio podcast that got put up on YouTube. The host of it is uh, Claire Lehman, also known as Caliper Claire. 
She is the editor-in-chief of Killette Magazine. Killette is a race pseudoscience publication based in Australia. Um, really, really neat during the pandemic to see the Very Smart People Club. You know who you are. Uh, act like she's not crazy because uh, she wasn't an anti-vaxxer. That's like the bare minimum. Her interview guest is Helen Pluckrose. Helen Pluckrose did this, the grievance studies, essentially, uh, with James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian, and that's sort of her claim to fame. She likes to pretend that that's not how she got popular, because especially James Lindsay ended up being like an even bigger piece of shit than he was before. But Helen, we know how you got popular. You got popular because you were pals with James Lindsay running around fucking doing dumb shit like the conceptual penis article, which, by the way, we have a we have a piece on in the Defamation Times. It talks about how they uh, ended up having to go into a pay-to-play journal for their fake article, and then they declared victory. But it was more a, an indictment of pay-to-play journals than it was of social justice content. So here is Helen Pluckrose on the Caliper Claire show on the role of postmodernism in the construction of modern social justice dogmas. This is going to suck. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so no. by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. Don't do that. The subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early... They do send you some nice phrenology calipers, but don't do it. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, here with a few brief words before stepping aside so you can listen to Quillette founder and editor-in-chief Claire Lehman interview England-based author Helen Pluckrose. Many of you will know Helen as the former editor of Aereo magazine and one of the three brains behind the so-called Grievance Studies hoax in 2018, in which Helen and two collaborators submitted hilarious... Notice they don't mention the names of the two collaborators. ...to super-progressive academic journals and got many of them published. Since then... Mostly in pay-to-play journals, again. Like, the, they're, they're leaving that part out. Mostly in pay-to-play journals. Helen has co-authored a best-selling 2020 book called Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. She also started an organization... Yeah, they're not mentioning no James Lindsay in this for some reason. I wonder why that is. ...called Counterweight, which helps console and train individuals who are targeted by social justice mobs. <laughs> ...adapted from a performance that Claire and Helen conducted as part of the Free Thought Live events that Quillette... The guy got dunked on Anonymous. ...think Inc., Helen goes beyond mere denunciations of cancel culture and looks at the intellectual roots of social justice ideology. In particular, she discusses the way that the postmodern intellectual currents of the 1970s and 1980s, which emphasized doubt and the limitations of knowledge, have been applied paradoxically to more modern... That's not... No, 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 no. They didn't... It doesn't... Postmodernism isn't doubt about the the idea of knowledge it's skepticism of grand like more, like super broadly it's like skepticism of brand grand narratives like postmodernists tend to reject marxism for example marxism is a grand narrative about the way the world works postmodernism rejects a lot of the narratives of the enlightenment and modernist philosophy theory which emphasize what their proponents present as ironclad revealed truths about the world and heavily discourage dissent 
The result, as Helen describes, can be odd and contradictory mashups of ideology and jargon, especially in what is known as queer theory, which on one hand embraces the traditional post-structuralist project of tearing down established notions, such as sex and gender, but on the other hand also creates rigid and highly structured intersectional categories, such as trans and non-binary. Helen Wait, those aren't trans and non- okay, non-binary isn't a rigid category. It's by even just you listen to the name. It's not. It's these are not like these are not rigid. Just because just because we're able to do, like put a like a word to a group of things doesn't mean that it's like a rigid category. They haven't even started the interview, and I'm already fucking mad. Discusses the relationship between postmodern traditions and Marxism. Many conservative critics often will speak of Marxist and postmodern intellectual traditions in the same breath. But as Helen explains, the two are very different in several important senses. Marx focused on convincing people to awaken themselves to class struggle. But postmodern theories tend to focus on the limitations of dialogue and suggest that we are all so suffused by bigotry that conversation or debate are impossible. But enough of my summarizing. Let's get well, on. With the I mean, you're summarizing like a, a fucking a group of lies that are being told about this stuff pretty well. Who's this guy? Hi, everyone. It's Susie from Thinking here. This event is presented by our friends Colette, led by the brave and brilliant Claire Lehman, who will be the host of today's show. It is also supported by the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism. Think Inc. are proud presenting partners of today's show, and our mission is to make the world a better place by raising rational discourse through live events. Please let me introduce to you the founding editor of Quillette, Claire Lehman. Thank you so much, Susie. Helen is a UK author and she's the co-author of the best-selling book, Cynical Theories, about how scholarship has... Say his name. He, he wrote the book with her. His name is James Lindsay. They're not going to fucking mention him at all in this. Watch. ...has become obsessed with gender, race and sexuality and why this harms everybody. Hello, thank you. It's lovely to see you. I noticed on social media this morning something popped up which made me think of your work and I want to discuss it as applied postmodernism which is something that you talk about in your book. The mm. CDC, the Center for Disease Control in the United States, has put out guidelines for their use of the vaccine, the coronavirus vaccine, and they're advising that essential workers get the vaccine first, which is fair enough, but that a broad category of essential workers get it before the elderly. And the reasoning mm. given behind this, even in their guidelines, explicitly given, is that the elderly are predominantly or disproportionately white. And um, I'm wondering. I don't think the CDC said that. This as an example of applied postmodernism or applied critical race theory. The race of individuals shouldn't have anything to do with whether or not they get a vaccine. For We know that black and South Asian people here in the UK have been affected in greater numbers than um, white people. This is quite possibly because they live uh, more likely to live in cities, likely to have larger families. But with the whole sort of racialization of the issue has made it... Wait a minute. So... If these communities, if these like groups of people are being affected more by the disease than other groups of people, why wouldn't you pri prioritize getting the vaccines to these groups of people? Be they 
city dwellers or black and brown folks or whatever like why why wouldn't you prioritize them when you're distributing a vaccine i don't understand she just like undercut the whole fucking argument that was presented to her difficult for anybody to find out exactly why differences exist and then how to to deal with them nothing really ever works better when you think in terms of power systems of race and identity and you completely omit any empirical scholarship or wait a minute is what do you mean you think about how systems of, of race and identity work but then you omit or any empirical scholarship how the fuck does she think that people got this information about like statistics about race in our society? Does she think that they just conjured that shit up from fucking magic dust? The, there was scholarship, there were studies, there was data collected to get this information about these groups. What the fuck? Consistent ethics, and that's, that's what we're seeing a lot of at the moment. Now, going to your book, Cynical Theories... I was struck by the emphasis that you put on Foucault as mm. being the sort of... Oh, that's not her. That's James Lindsay. They're not going to ever... Dude, this I don't know when this was recorded. This It showed up to me on YouTube as having been within the last month. But it, it the way they're talking, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they're talking about the... Uh, maybe when they're talking about the vaccine, they're talking about the uh, the current, like the bivalent booster or whatever. But whatever happened here, this is long after James Lindsay like started posting anti-Semitic shit and getting in arguments with the fucking like, Holocaust Museum on Twitter. So they're just going to be like James who, even though he's like the co-author of the book. And <clears throat> I'd suggest to you he's way more popular than Helen Pluckrose. And he's, you know, if some people ride the coattails of more popular people than them to get uh, popular themselves. And I think Helen, <clears throat> to a large extent, did that with James Lindsay. And now she wants to wash her hands of the whole fucking thing saint of wokeness as opposed to some of the earlier critical theorists like Makusa. A lot of people get very annoyed with me for blaming Foucault for all of this, but I can understand uh, why in some ways, because his work was broad. But there are three main ideas of his that have been continued in the scholarship that has succeeded him. And this is his ideas about knowledge, power and language. And that is precisely what we're seeing um, underlying almost everything in critical social justice or wokeism, as it's colloquially called. So there's this idea that knowledge is a product of power. What we assume to be true and the ways we go about discovering what is true operates in the service of the powerful. And these are understood to be straight white Western men. And they decide what is knowledge and what isn't knowledge. The knowledge of other people like um, women and marginalized groups, uh, minorities and trans people are neglected. And therefore, we need to have. Well, to, I mean, yeah, we don't know what a lot of black people knew in Europe uh, fucking two or three hundred years ago that we weren't allowed to know. They weren't allowed to write some shit down. They didn't have access to any of this stuff. So we don't know what they knew, what they were discovering what kind of information they were, what kind of information they had, had come across, what kind of new discoveries they made, because they weren't allowed to make no discoveries. Like, I don't understand why this is controversial. A variety of knowledges. So this knowledge that's constructed in the service of power then gets perpetuated through society. 
um, in discourses, which is uh, ways of speaking about things. So this is where the idea we get comes from that the whole of society is permeated with white supremacism or patriarchy or transphobia, and we need these critical theorists. But like able- she's now she's like Mar- Marcuse, I think she's talking about. I don't remember now already, but it wasn't talking about no transphobia. This is a long time ago before trans people were starting to be accepted, before they were visible in our societies. So this person she's talking about, this prior intellectual, that doesn't have anything to do with, he wasn't talking about no transphobia. Able to spot it for us and point it out and make us aware of it because the rest of us are kind of wandering around in a, in a daze, in a dream, because we are not one of the woke There's a form of analysis, I think it's called discourse analysis, and I think people Mm. are trained to sort of pick up newspapers and try to find the discourses or the rhetoric inside newspaper articles for evidence of racism, sexism, and so on. This comes from Foucault, do you think? I think Foucault would probably... I mean, what is she talking about? Did the New York Times... Foucault? Like, why... When you read like the newspaper, you're like, this article seems a little racist to me. It's not because of what Foucault said. It's because you fucking, you've made that decision yourself. You're like, actually, this seems a little racist. Oh, this is Brett Stevens. Okay, that explains it. Probably hate the current manifestation of it. Mm-hmm. I think he'd be spinning in his grave. He certainly wouldn't have been a fan of identity politics. He and- dead. How do you know what this person would be a fan of if they were alive today? He dead, Helen. You don't know. What if you? What if you? What if he was like 130 years old and woke as fuck? Then what? Certainly, have recognised the social justice movement um, as an orthodoxy and a meta narrative in itself. Mm. But yes, I I think from all of the post structuralist thinkers, Foucault is the one whose thought has sort of permeated everything through various different branches. You know, through post-colonialism, it entered America via Edward Said. To be fair, America is the the foundation of America. Leave leave slavery out of it. I know no, it was founded on, we were built by slaves. But it was, the the idea of the Declaration of of Independence was post-colonialism because the United States no longer wanted to be a colony of Great Britain. Or at that point, the colonies no longer wanted to be colonies of Great Britain. So, I don't know. Well, I guess she doesn't like no fuck, well, none of them fucking American patriots and shit. Those people that are like, give me liberty or give me death. It's like, well, that's actually a post-colonial idea. And I think that you're a, but you're a social justice warrior now. Theory, it came from Butler and from Kosofsky Sedgwick. And then we see it again in critical race theory, where we've got this link with so intersectionality, which um, is defined as contemporary politics linked with postmodern theory. No, no, intersect. That's not the definition of intersectionality. The definition of intersectionality is just it's just real simple. You have you have more than one identity, and those intersect in certain ways. And people might view you or treat you differently based on the ways that your different identities intersect. It doesn't have. Come on, man. I don't like this shit. They 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 act like. You just pick one or two thinkers that said something that sort of sounds like something that happened after them. And then everything that happened after them must have been based on what they said. There's a hell of a lot of people on this fucking planet. And most of them have never heard of no Foucault. 
we're seeing a lot of Foucault's ideas Mm. connected to the radical left politics mm. for which but um, i guarantee you you go find fuck 25 or 30 radical leftists you go uh, so you, what do you think of foucault they'd be like what <laughs> like the vast majority of them don't know what the fuck you're talking about <clears throat> and there's nothing wrong with that if i didn't do the intellectual dollar tree i'd have no idea who the fuck foucault is and others certainly do bear some responsibility but the idea of microaggressions of bias of unconscious bias of discourses the idea that racism is there in everything and we just have to spot it mm. this well it's there in damn near everything yeah i don't it's not your job to go around spotting it but you should be like alert and be able to see it when it's like at least when it's obvious i don't know more postmodern than the neo-Marxists or post-Marxists of the what, what? school. Would you say that Foucault was the first scholar to problematize biology and the sciences, or were the sciences treated with skepticism before Foucault? And the entire scientific community treats everything in the scientific community with skepticism. That's what peer review is. That's how the scientific method works in modern society. This is this is going to be really frustrating, and it, we're, it's going to feel like we're here forever. Scientific and counter-enlightenment ideas are certainly not limited to postmodern thought, mm. but Foucault is particularly influential here because of his look at historically at sexuality and at madness. And there's, there's some basis in there. We really have changed the way we see homosexuality. Yes. You know, it was understood. Is that good? She's not even going to say that that's good. That's good, right? It's good. It's good that we changed the way we see homosexuality or whatever. Right? That's good. It's good for most for gay people, but it's good for gay people's loved ones and their friends. And it's good for everybody because now there's like fucking more gay bars and gay clubs and fucking more disco music than ever. Like as a heinous sin for centuries then it was understood as a sexual disorder mm. now it's just something some people are and everyone else needs to get over it so we know that culture is she is she saying that that's true or that's good or that what what is she saying about that because i guess that was an oversimplification of what happened but yeah like for a while like they thought it was a sin and they might fucking kill you for being gay and then uh, for a while, they tried to medicalize and uh, psyche psychologize it and say that actually you just something's wrong with your brain. And now, actually, there's just that some people are gay and you some people just need to fucking get over it. Like, I, she's not like saying that that's good, though. I think she's actually saying the opposite. Right. I think she's saying that that this is because of Foucault. We know that ideas change, but this is where. The postmodernists and Foucault and the, the queer theorists in particular, I think, get extreme and neurotic is where they don't recognize the changing attitudes towards sexuality as progress mm. brought about by the development of a liberal society. But they believe that because ideas have been oppressive before, they still are. And we still what? have to dismantle everything. Hmm. It's it's very odd that the people who describe themselves as progressives are the ones who are least likely to believe in progress. I remember reading a book back in undergraduate studies called The Invention of Heterosexuality. And the thesis mm. was that 
heterosexuality as a normative category didn't exist before the 19th century. Would you say that that's like a classic example of the queer theorists, they certainly start in the 19th century. Mm. So what? they are looking at the early sexologists and the way that they medicalized sexuality. Yeah. They tend to start there and um, focus on a lot of the bad ideas, which is what happens when science begins to study something. Mm. It is generally coming into a field that has a lot of bad ideas. And if it works properly... It eradicates those ideas bit by bit. And I think this is what we have seen mm. as empirical studies into sexuality have developed. But yes, this idea that heterosexuality is a, a construct of um, the 19th century is clearly nonsense. I was just reading about how masculinity was a construct of the 16th century. Central to the whole sort of idea of queer theory is to break down all boundaries and to confuse and conflate everything. Queer theory is the one which has remained most purely post-structuralist or post-modern. So in structuralism and in, in modern times, we have put things into categories. So what queer theory wants to do is break down those categories. There is no such thing as man and woman. There's no such thing as masculine and feminine or gay and straight. These are all constructs. They're performed. We've been put in. This is this is all well and good. But, you know, <clears throat> where's the queer theorist on like to talk to them about this? This, this is so weird they're like oh here's what queer theorists believe but it's like i don't know fucking do they is this what they believe you fucking ain't never gonna talk to one you probably get fucking ripped to shreds by somebody who knows what they're talking about if it comes to queer theory postmodernism, critical theory into those categories and the way to liberate people who don't fit into those categories is to eliminate the categories and this is why queer has become a verb now so to queer something is to break down the categories in which it's understood or it's just to fucking i mean like somebody somebody like went in my bedroom they'd be like god we gotta queer your bedroom and what they would mean is like why doesn't your bedroom look like that of a gay man <laughs> Why isn't it decorated well? To exist and try and understand it in a different way. So this is why we often see queer theorists sort of looking at humans as though they're aliens who have never encountered a sexually reproducing species before what? and are trying to work out how it all works. The concept of non-binary must come directly from queer theory. Would this be correct? This is where it gets really interesting and messy. Which it's interesting to me, anyway. It's, um, not <laughs> oh, this has been this has been already been pretty messy, if you ask me. Trans activism, as we see it at the moment, and some of the more sort of unusual sexualities or gender identities that are proliferating at the moment, they come from a really sort of unholy mix of queer theory, which wants to break down all categories and intersectional feminism, right. which wants to assert the reification, the, the reality of category groups. So yes. if you have someone saying trans women are women, trans women are women, trans women are women, as we will see over and over again, this is not consistent with the queer theory idea of breaking down categories. Mm -hmm. This is the assertion of a category. Oh, so now, now this thing that, oh, well, it just doesn't make sense now because...
because of the story I'm telling you about. I would call it social justice scholarship because it's that third generation. So yes. it's not pure queer theory, which yes. is dissolving everything. And it's not pure intersectionality because it's still conflating things. But it, mm. it's that third contradictory thing. Yeah. <laughs> now, you track how postmodernism has changed over time. How did that transition occur? The first postmodernists, because they just wanted to deconstruct everything, essentially, mm. they were radically sceptical and they felt that nothing could be trusted. Mm. So there was a pr huge proliferation of writing from the 60s into the 80s and then it just died because there's only so far you can go with that. Then at the end of the 80s, we saw a rise of a new set of theorists who essentially argued that postmodern ideas were useful um, deconstructing gender and sexuality and, and race and everything else was a valuable thing to do. Seeing everything as an oppressive social construct was good, but we have to accept some reality to exist or we can't do anything. So theorists ranging from um, Butler in queer theory to Crenshaw in intersectionality, Mary Poovey in um, feminism all said we need to use some of these postmodern tools but we need to accept that an objective truth exists and that truth that exists is that power and privilege exist. So what the fuck? I mean, I just says, <clears throat> I mean, I think she's just like she's like building the straw person like straw by straw here. <laughs> it, it's not like she just did the lot like this just a fucking scarecrow or some shit. No, she's building it fucking every single straw putting it together that everything is a social construct doesn't mean that power isn't clustering around these social constructs and affecting real people. So this is a... Well, yeah. Is that... Why is that... That's a... Okay. If we've, like, socially constructed these different things that you can be and some of those things are associated with power and some of those things are associated with not having any power, well, yeah, that's all going to fucking have a bunch of interplay together. Yeah. Why is... Like, why is she... Why is that... Why is she like, oh, well, this is this crazy thing they came up with in the 80s? Like, what? Turn back to some objective reality. Then as this scholarship sort of grew in, in different branches from post-colonial theory to queer theory to critical race theory to disability studies to fat studies, um, it... I feel like disability studies isn't new more and more confident of itself. In almost 50 years of scholarship behind it now, it became a lot clearer and a lot more assertive. So if you were to compare a paragraph from um, Judith Butler with a paragraph from Robin D'Angelo, you will find in Butler incomprehensible prose expressing doubt about everything. In D'Angelo, you will be told that it is absolutely impossible for a white person not to be racist, that everybody it has oh, to Oh, that fucking white fragility book that's fucking fragility. the gift that keeps really on giving to these dumb fucks. a really strong certainty. So what has happened over the last 30 years, the postmodern ideas of knowledge, language and power became politicized and actionable, is that they have reified, concretized and sort of simplified into this very reductionist system where everybody is dominated by discourses around identity and plotted on this power grid. Some would argue that what we see now resembles 
the Marxist critique of society or the conflict critique where we have oppressors versus the oppressed in this very simplified reductionistic framework. But you, you've rejected this idea that it's a Marxist critique. I have followed the postmodernists in their criticism of Marxist critiques. So um, Foucault, again, he criticised the post-Marxists who were seeing power as pressing down. There's an oppressor group and an oppressed group. And the group at the bottom needs to raise their consciousness, have this critical consciousness to realise that they are being oppressed by the capitalist system. And then they will rise up and overthrow the oppressor. So Foucault and the other postmodernists disagreed with this. They thought this was a simplistic meta-narrative. What happens is not that there's a group of people knowingly oppressing another group, but there are ways of knowing. There is a construct of knowledge which leads to ways of talking about things. Which but now she just changed the subject. She's like, oh, there aren't, isn't a group of people that are oppressing another group of people, but actually there are ways of knowing, which is like just off, just fucking shoots off to the fucking side of what she was saying. It's like she didn't even finish her thought. Unless like I interrupted her too quickly. Situated by everybody. So this is why we will see activists, they may leap on the words of the President of the United States or somebody with three followers on Twitter, because whoever they are, they're speaking into this discourse. Yeah. So okay. the people who need to raise their consciousness in the postmodern idea are the privileged. We are the yeah. ones who are blind and not right. can't see things. Marx thought philosophy would free the proletariat. Mm. So he believed in the ability to argue for something, to raise consciousness. He believed in dialectic, so he believed in dialogue. The postmodernists don't. They believe that discourses will just get repeated and repeated, and so their descendants want to shut down conversation rather than make arguments or measure ideas against each other. They don't think that is a thing that can ever, ever actually work. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, we're not, but we may check this out more often. This is wild. You'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools for normal human struggles offers video and have to seal than in person join the millions of percent off their flat again that's betterhelp help.com slash quillette thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship and now back to the quillette podcast this idea that power comes from discourse is this the root of the idea that language causes violence or language can be violent Yes, if you were to search discursive violence, um, epistemic violence, then you'll find a whole body of scholarship on how our systems of knowledge and the way we talk about things create violent outcomes for certain groups. In society. Yes! Yeah. Yeah, the way we talk about <clears throat> things, and I would say people, might actually create some violence towards some people. Clearest example of this, and I know people, you know, this is overly simplistic, but if I go hire somebody to kill you, I'm having a discourse with that person about how you need to be dead 
And then the fucking hitman goes, oh, great, that'll be 10 grand, or maybe in, with inflation now it's 20 grand. And now you're dead. <laughs> if you don't accept that trans women are, are straightforwardly women, then you are encouraging a hostile environment in which trans women commit suicide or are murdered. There's also just a tendency to see people speaking into an oppressive discourse as creating a violent situation for everyone. And then, of course, this justifies responding to it with physical violence. And so, wait a minute. Is she suggesting that violent rhetoric just has no impact on society? Is she, is she suggesting that, like, eliminationist rhetoric, racist rhetoric... Uh, anti-woman in her case rhetoric has no impact on society because also this is one of them people that was like freaking out about cancel culture and is this concept of epistemic violence or discursive violence relatively recent or new when i was at university and i came into contact with postmodernism, i'd never heard of it well, epistemic violence is Gertrude Spivak, so that was that, that's certainly not new. And she cited Michel Foucault on almost every page. But every, whoever this is did not absolutely not. What a boring book! If if it's just like as Foucault said, as Foucault said, every page. Get out of here! I don't even know who that is. Has just really sort of exploded in the last five years. Is spot on, because this is when the the discipline of feminist epistemology, critical race epistemology, has really taken off. And um, in our book, we put it in the same chapter as social justice scholarship, because it's it's the final stage. I think it's the stage we're at now where everything is about the knowledge that is owned by the powerful and the knowledge that is denied to the marginalized. So the language around epistemology has just really proliferated in the last five to 10 years, particularly the last five years. So we, we hear epistemic exploitation is when you ask someone to um, explain their experiences of oppression but uh, epistemic no, you can ask somebody to explain their experiences of oppression there have been great interviews all throughout time of people who have been oppressed <laughs> by other people by their government uh, some of them refugees some of them are referred to as freedom fighters some of them were first referred to as terrorists and now were referred to as freedom fighters you can actually ask somebody about their trauma and their, the, the way in which they've been abused by society and not be engaged in what anybody would call epistemic violence or, or whatever. Like, she's wrong. It's when you're like, it's when somebody's like, oh, um, I'm, you know, I, I'm regularly exposed to racism as a black person or whatever. And you go, oh, yeah, prove it. Yeah, tell me how. How, how, does, that, how does that work? You like it's it's about your tone. It's about like the way you ask questions, because I'd be like, oh, you, you know, I'm a I'm a white person. I don't experience racism. Um, if you, you want to, can you tell me more about this? That's fucking fine. You're like, explain this to me. I fucking, what's that feel like? What is that like every day? Like you, you, you could be inquisitive about this stuff. That's not what she's talking about, right? Oppression is when you you don't ask them to. There isn't a, a right way to do this. You can erase people. You can exploit them. There's even. Um, I think epistemic death, 
that one is, is, is Jose Medina and that comes about when people are so misunderstood that they cease to believe in themselves as having a life as being a, a real person it's um there's there's a massive amount of scholarship around it now it's like the world mm. entirely exists through language we are always new language is like the only way we can communicate really about the world around us as humans language i mean laws about heresy and blasphemy go back the, the idea that we should be able to freely exchange ideas it's what's new and what's weird mm-hmm. the the postmodernists and the, the social justice scholars and activists they seem to think that they're being new and radical when they're being so neurotic about language but mm-hmm. in reality they're um, they're tapping into a very human instinct to to try to control what other people are allowed to think and say. That's a tremendous insight, and I had not thought of it that way. Is that insight gained from your medieval history studies? I looked at um, the ways in which women use the Christian narrative. Which way in which which way in which your genius did you uh, come to this conclusion from? Was basically the question. Which smarty pants thing that you're a smarty pants about led you to this, led you to understand this thing before I did? It was interesting. To sort of gain authority and autonomy for themselves. So I looked at that before and after the Reformation in England. I was interested in how Catholics and how Protestants differed in the way that they allowed women to actually have a voice in a time in which, which genuinely was patriarchal. You can see certainly a lot of patterns. People simply weren't allowed not to be Christian for quite a lot of English history. This sort of authoritarian, sort of for your own good attitude, I think it's it's really quite central to humans. The belief that if you allow people to express heresy, you will damn souls. So you are, by, by cancelling them, by killing them, or by removing them from society. Yes, yes, the people involved in queer theory are really worried about whether or not your internal, eternal soul goes to hell. And they don't want you to do any heresy. Good, and you are protecting people. You are keeping them safe. And we certainly see echoes of that in the social justice idea. If somebody says something which is seen to be damaging and their career is utterly destroyed or damaged it's it's a just response because it's preventing them from reinforcing this harmful narrative i'm not sure i would call it just but if you go on twitter and start saying a whole bunch of racist shit and then a bunch of people notice it and they're like oh it says you work at uh you know the university of fucking phoenix or whatever (laughs) i wonder if the university of phoenix knows that uh you're uh out here on twitter wiling out like this yeah that's called the consequences of your actions See, she's all for the free exchange of ideas unless I start exchanging ideas with her employer about what she's doing as a public figure representing her employer. Now she's like, well, you need to shut up. She's, you know, literally killing people, as they would say. So it's a tendency of humans to want to police each other's language and to enforce purity and conformity. But we had this marvellous period of enlightenment and modernity. Mm. Can you explain from a historical point of view how the enlightenment, liberalism and modernity differentiate from that more medieval period of history? And what's 
unique and different and what's worth preserving about the modern period? This is where philosophers are going to accuse me of being hugely simplistic, yeah. but I'm just going to have to. <laughs> sure. But yeah, <laughs> so in pre-modern times, the idea of knowledge was that it came from divine revelation. The idea of language was that it should be monitored and that it, people must believe the right thing. There was confession, there was catechism. And no, that's just Catholicism. Is that there is just that's not a whole time period. Also, this is pretty much, um, they're only talking about Europe, right? They ain't talking a while nowhere else, just Europe. From the state and everybody has their place and they have to act within their role. So the idea that sort of gradually developed very imperfectly over the modern period was the idea of the individual who could assess ideas for him or herself. So, of course, the, the Reformation um, played into this a lot, where everybody was supposed to read the Bible and interpret it for themselves. Have the Renaissance, there's the idea of the many-sided person who could relate to ancient Hebrews or ancient Greeks, but was an individual. And as we've sort of gone through gradually developing these liberal ideas and the idea of, of liberalism itself, of course, kind of solidified with the likes of John Stuart Mill and, and Mary Wollstonecraft. But the idea of it that we should actually all have our right to express ideas and not only should this be an individual right, but that it actually advances knowledge. Mm. So Milton argued for this in Areopagitica, now, a sort of 400 years ago. Obviously, he didn't extend this freedom of speech to Catholics and atheists, but the argument that he made was... But, like, who are the Catholics? What, 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 that's the fucking, that's the whole, wrong. yeah, that's the whole thing, and it, it, never, it didn't change that fast. What the fuck? for the right reasons, for having looked at things and assessed them yourself, than just being right because you believe what you've been told to believe. So this sort of idea of knowledge as something that can be obtained by study, by thought, and it can be argued out, is something that developed very gradually, but it came into a, a real sort of culmination between the 60s and the 80s was when we saw these ideas liberal ideas extended to everybody so before this we had this idea that everybody was an individual and everybody was equal but that didn't actually include black people women or gays so the 60s to the 80s we so like all we just saw we fixed it all in the i, I, I can't fucking believe what she's saying here that we just oh we actually fixed it all between the 60s and the 80s done civil rights movement we saw gay pride we saw liberal feminism and the, you know, the fall of colonialism and uh, the end of Jim Crow so these were huge huge developments and this is part of what started the the postmodern phase because there was just disillusionment with how many centuries have we been oppressing people when we thought ourselves to be liberal and inclusive yeah that's so, a good question that's why like that's that's the thing is like you look back on history you're like how could people have believed these things well it was just what people believed then and i have a feeling that we're not at the end of history yet or anything so fucking 100 years from now people are going to look at what we believe and the things we say and the things we do and they're like how the hell did gay dave believe that 
you know, how did HK Perrin believe that? I'm not excluding myself from this. I'm not like some kind of like visionary or a fucking person from the future here. The, the, the notion that, the notion that basically the history kind of ended in the, in the end of the eighties or the early nineties is just absurd. Essential to note is that these massive changes, which improved in the rights of women, in racial equality and the rights of gay men to have sex without being arrested and ultimately to be able to be married. Um, these but that just happened like, fucking, that just happened like nine years ago, Helen. And now there's like a fucking blood libel moral panic going on about queer people again. Helen, you, you keep undercutting your own argument, Helen. These all happened before the postmodern branches all sort of spiked off in around 1989. Mm. Wait, no, this, wait, no, you just said gay marriage happened later. These, therefore, it didn't happen before. Yo, she's like, not only is she like, a really horrible person actually who's engaged in like racist behavior through most of her p career as a um uh like a fucking public intellectual or whatever she just is dumb i think she's not very bright and we saw that the rise of queer theory and intersectional feminism and critical race theory this was a disillusionment with liberalism at this point they decided liberalism couldn't do the job that it was meant to do. And they decided this precisely the time when it, it had just done it. It was still doing it. it mm. <laughs> Wait, well, if it was still do it, never mind. My God. Do you think one of the weaknesses of liberalism is that when people have opportunities and rights, they choose to do different things. You know, I choose to spend my time doing something that I enjoy. and Measuring people's skulls find fulfillment from but i might not get paid as much as i would doing something else but that's my choice mm -hmm. so when we have opportunity and freedom and rights we choose different things and that leads to different outcomes and what we mm -hmm. see today so often in the, the discourse in media narratives is that different outcomes are a priori evidence of discrimination it seems not every different outcome is is in and of itself evidence of discrimination it's a it's a bigger picture thing it's when we take all the information and examine it that we go wow uh, probably some discrimination going on in here if, if if this is the way it always shakes out for different people in different groups you know it's not that it's not that this is always every different outcome as a result of discrimination like i'm you know able to pay some percentage of my bills podcasting and streaming that's my current outcome that a result of discrimination? Uh, yeah, actually, because more of you aren't watching and giving me money. You're discriminating against me. <laughs> but, like, that's a different thing than, like, are queer people more likely to get fired in, or laid off in, like, rounds of layoffs, like, disproportionately or whatever. That's a different question. And this is being, it's, it's the, they're individualizing, they're hyper-individualizing everything gap in liberalism that gets exploited by critical race theorists and others who would want to implement a more authoritarian system. I certainly think that liberalism leaves open the possibility for people to be illiberal yeah. and have illiberal ideas. 
that's always a danger. I think it's a necessary danger. Why is it a danger? What she means to say is this, uh, the liberalism or whatever, like leaves open the possibility that people might not share my exact view. I'm right. So oh, this is a, this is a uh, weakness of liberalism actually, is that some people critique what is currently believed to be the liberal order. People are um, engaged in uh, theorizing that is uh, critical of the current order, which, uh, some people think is just hunky dory and other people are like, well, I am going to uh, try to critique this and see if I can find any flaws in the, the order. And that's a problem, I guess. But just now it wasn't a problem before it was all gravy before when pe things changed for the better. Otherwise, uh, Helen would be like somebody's concubine right now. And I, I don't, wouldn't wish that on Helen, but like I basically like as soon as she got hers or like her, 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 her gay neighbor that she pretends to like was able to like walk down the street and not get their ass kicked or whatever. She's like, oh, fucking history's over. Good job, everybody. I think we have to allow people to have bad ideas and to be factually wrong mm. about things. And I, I think the evidence that liberalism has worked to uh, advance knowledge and make moral progress is quite overwhelming. Yeah. But yes, that, that certainly is the weakness of it, is that if we allow people to believe whatever they want to believe and to apply their beliefs to their own lives as long as they're not harming anybody else, we're going to see the rise of, of some really terrible ideas and some of them are going to get quite popular as, mm. as we're seeing with critical social justice. Mm. It would be illiberal. I think this is like happening, this is happening like during the height of COVID and the, the big bad idea I think that's going around right now is like anti-vaxxism. Also the <clears throat> blood libel moral panic going on about queer people is a pretty bad idea too but they're like actually the problem is the postmodernists it's always the postmodernists the social justice wars just always them we do argue in cynical people theory, hang out in my chat it's, it's all of you to be applied to it it needs to be understood as something that people have the right to believe to express and live by but not imposed upon other people but yes a liberal society is not one that would crush this idea or criminalize it mm. i think on the whole that's a good thing but it certainly is why um, these ideas exist. I know that you don't advocate for, you know, the defunding of certain academic disciplines and departments within the university. You acknowledge and respect academic freedom and it's a bad idea to set a precedent for government interference. I think that would set a, a very bad precedent because we might think that, yes, getting rid of scholarship, which isn't based on evidence, which doesn't have consistent principles, mm. is a good she's thing. Making, she's making, she's fucking drawing a big, big wide brush about critical scholarship. Universities. Big wide brush here. have to die naturally. We can't have the government deciding what is and isn't good knowledge we have to submit them to the marketplace of ideas and let them sink or swim and this is one of the problems with critical social justice theory they don't submit themselves to the marketplace of ideas well then how the fuck are you here talking about them they surround themselves in theory which just closes down any possibility of legitimate disagreement one of the papers that we wrote during our project 
argued that there simply is no way to legitimately disagree with social justice scholarship and anybody who tries should be. Which journal did you get that published in? And was it a reputable journal or was it a pay to play journal? And shut down. Wow. And that was one of our papers that that was the one that got accepted fastest of all in nine wow. days. It, wow. it was accepted with revisions um, <clears throat> and then which which journal revisions and it was in. Now that that's terrifying. Another paper was about dog humping in parks. Can you tell us about that paper, <laughs> Helen? <laughs> People always remember that paper because uh, they haven't mentioned James Lindsay or yeah, Peter Bogosian uh, once, and uh, James uh, Lindsay and Peter Bogosian were at least equal parts of this grievance studies thing they're talking about as Helen was, but they're not bringing those people up because those people of, uh, you know, they are who they are and they're saying the things they're saying. Uh, Peter Bogosian was over, uh, hanging out with, uh, hanging out with Orban and, um, James Lindsay just went full on queer panic. So Peter and James who? That was the one that got us caught because it was so obviously ridiculous to everybody who wasn't a particular kind of feminist geographer. Uh, Yes. Wait, a feminist geographer? A particular type of feminist geographer? What? We claim to have examined 100,000 dog genitals in three parks in Portland, Oregon. Then interviewed the owners of the dogs about their sexuality and then applied black feminist criminology for no apparent reason to this data and then concluded that it meant that nightclubs were rape condoning spaces and we should train men like dogs and by the way we'd also shredded all of our data in order to protect the dog's privacy so it was the most ludicrous People have criticised us for fabricating data, but this data, it wasn't possible in the first mm. place. Mm. Well, yeah, that's a fabrication. ...from it were simply not warranted or even related. Mm. So this is why we did this. This is why we submitted implausible data and, and drew weird conclusions from it. But it, got, that- it got fucking rejected. <clears throat> Everybody figured it out because it was implausible. You're, again, you're undercutting your point, but go on. One had a special place in an edition as exemplary scholarship. I don't want to disparage all scholarship. There is some good scholarship going on out there. And after we revealed our project, a group of feminist um, geographers got in touch with me. They were interested in our paper because they were doing solid research into, I think it's the distribution of medical resources in South Asia. Mm. And they were doing proper feminist geography and they were very concerned about the journal. And so it undermines when they'll publish. This journal that it got, I'm telling you, this stuff, I think it all got published in pay to play journals. And I know in the one they called the conceptual penis, they ended up like stiffing the journal and never even giving them the 600 bucks or whatever. It undermines the really solid work that is being done by empirical scholars in the same field. We're often quick to write off the humanities. Well, I know I have. I've written off the humanities as irrelevant or full of these nonsense ideas. But there are very good scholars doing very good research in the humanities. And there's a lot of people doing empirical research. And it's really sad that these people doing valuable research are getting caught up or lumped in with this nonsense. But you're the one doing that, Claire. 
You just said a minute ago that you've been just uh, eager to write off the humanities. You're the one doing the thing that you said it's unfortunate that some people are doing, Claire. You just said that you are the one doing it. And I wish there was a way we could disentangle the more valuable parts of the humanities from some of these faddish theories and ideas. Have you thought about how we, we can do this in a more effective way? Well, th this was journals, reputable journals, peer review, uh, replication of studies, the whole fucking thing. There was a whole replication crisis in, I believe, psychology where the, a lot of studies weren't being replicated and it was kind of hard to kind of hard to move forward at that point. And I'm probably absolutely butchering what the replication crisis was. Um, maybe we should get somebody on who knows about it. But the it's not just the humanities where sometimes things don't get replicated quickly enough for like people to move forward one of the aims of our project and i'm you know i'm tentatively encouraged that something like this is happening because you know this kind of problem can happen in any field but when yeah. the wakefield paper was published wrongly linking vaccines with autism mm. there was a method there for the paper to be criticized for yeah. the problems to be shown for it to be removed how'd that work out long term <laughs> anti-vaccine movement go on so we need for cultural studies and identity studies to apply this same kind of critiques of their own yeah. papers. Yes, we did want to embarrass this kind of scholarship and show how terrible it was in order to to sort of make people want to step away from it. And yeah. a lot of academics after this, even ones who really hated us and thought we were fascists, were quick to say that... No, they probably just thought James Lindsay was a fascist, and they were just a little bit ahead of the curve. ...that kind of scholarship. They did empirical scholarship, mm. so maybe we did a good thing there. <laughs> yeah. Have you noticed any of this self-correction occurring, or is it just business as usual? I'm keeping my eye on the journals. Some of the papers that we wrote have now been written seriously. We saw, for example, in, in one of our papers, we wrote that um, eating spicy chicken wings was actually a um, a homophobic act because of the, the idea of... You but, know, like, who believed that? Like, who, who believed that? I never met me. I, I met I met gay people who don't eat meat, but I've never met I've never met me a gay guy who eats meat who doesn't like some chicken wings. If you if you eat meat, you like chicken wings. Everybody likes chicken wings. It burns on the way out, and it was this toxic masculinity. Oh, that's fucking. That's oh, just a, did. Oh, oh, I fuck. Oh, that's gross. Oh. A, an article actually arguing that and then recently somebody wrote an article arguing that anal penetration with sex toys could help men deal with their toxic masculinity which is another paper that we actually got published quite seriously so no i think the nonsense what if these papers were mostly on, good <laughs> she has no idea is more aware of it now and i i think because it is becoming authoritarian because it's becoming enforced on people in their places of work in their children's schools they're less inclined to tolerate it and what i want 
to happen is for them to push this back from a liberal perspective. My worry is not that it's going to win. I don't think it can. My worry is that uh, it'll get pushed back by right-wing socially conservative ideas, which could actually roll back gender, racial and LGBT equality. But you're, that's, the, that's, that's what you're trying to do. I don't know if you're trying to do it. That's the impact of your work is to give, as Alex from the Q Origins Project would say, give some academic window dressing to people who want to put bigoted ideas out there. That's your, that's your role in all this, Helen. I'm sorry. Maybe, you know, maybe you bought the ticket and didn't know what ride you were going on. I don't know how to help you. And now a message from Blinkist, the academic Black cat eats to four of time when left cast. I suppose some people would argue, though, that the centre left is not doing a very good job at policing some of this nonsense on the fringes, and mm. the hard, these ideas on the hard left are becoming more and more entrenched in institutions. This is a valid criticism because I think the idea. Well, the fuck. Where, where, where are the moderates? Where are the the moderates? The moderate gays, the moderate liberals, the more moderate people of the left. Where are all the moderates? The moderate critical theorists, and why are they not? Why are they not policing the people who are not what we would call moderate? Also, I bet these two people would tell you that they're moderate, like moderate liberals, moderate lefties, or whatever, and they're clearly not social justice left because there's obviously also a radical left which is Marxist and which is also critical of the social justice left the liberal left is not doing a very good job at all of marginalising these ideas mm. you get the well, maybe they're good and even ethno-nationalist ideas on the, the right and they don't get institutional power I mean wait what you just said what is. Mm. You get the populist and even ethno-nationalist ideas on the, the right, and they don't get institutional power. I mean, they... You just said what? <laughs> Sorry, what? All right, whatever. They got political power. Donald Trump was elected, and that, I think, was a symptom of the problem. But I think that those of us, and, and this is what I keep writing about, because I think... There she just t contradicted herself again. Majority of people on the liberal left who don't agree with these ideas, but they still think that they should support them um, because anything that's for social justice must be a good thing. If now she's just reading the minds of fucking billions of people. She's like, oh, most of these people don't believe these things, actually. They just think they should against um, anything that's supposed to improve racial equality then they will be called a racist or they may even fear that they actually are being racist mm. yeah so, that's actually self-critic being self-critical is good thinking about like what you're going to say what you're going to put out there and how you're going to behave and is it a problem am i hurting somebody without even thinking about it yeah that's actually good it's a i would call it a sign of maturity didn't your parents tell you, like, think before you open your mouth? Well, that's what this is, just a version of think before you open your mouth. I guess they don't like that. So there isn't a strong enough understanding of how these ideas work to get the liberal left to really push them out. And that's, mm. that's one of the reasons that we wrote 
the book. We want mm. liberals to be confident enough to argue with these ideas without feeling like they'll be accused of being, or mm. caring that they'll be wrongly accused of being racist if they have liberal anti-racist ideas. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the traps is that today's activists who are from a critical social justice perspective, they trade on the prestige of the civil rights movement and they often use the same language but the ideas and how they're enforced are at odds with enlightenment liberalism of the civil rights wait what getting that across is with the the enlightenment and the civil rights the enlightenment and the civil rights movement didn't happen at the same time what the fuck difficult this is a thing which shouldn't be difficult because critical race theory, for example, it differentiates itself very clearly from civil rights discourse. It critiques liberalism, it critiques the civil rights movement as being too universalist. It wants to overturn liberalism entirely. Wait, what? No. It puts itself in direct opposition to the thought of people like Martin Luther King. Really quite explicitly, but people don't tend to see this. We're running out of time, Helen. You don't have to. What else do you have to do? What are you fucking... You late for <coughs> late for your yoga and phrenology lesson? Like, what are you talking you about? Plug the new organization that you've been building. Feel free to let us know more about it. Counterweight has been operating as a Discord server, and this is for people who are having problems at work or at their children's school with critical social justice ideas being imposed on them. Oh, so, so you're starting a cult? Individuals. Where this is cultic shit right here. <clears throat> This is like how uh, online conspiracy communities have grown too. They're like, oh, join our community. People at your work or people in your family are making fun of you because you believe in chemtrails or the flat earth. Don't worry. There's people here who love you. That's what, that's what this is. She's doing that's the same model. She's like, do the people at work think you're an asshole? Because you uh, call your uh, assistant, you call her toots. <laughs> Well, don't worry there's a discord server for you or we'll explain to you that actually she's just being a bitch particularly focused on those who aren't academics who may not be accustomed to writing their views defending their views um, but you know just average people who are trying to do their job and are getting suddenly diversity trained into things that they don't believe are true or ethical they're so, suddenly getting diversity trained into things that they don't believe are true or ethical this is just the google memo but turned into a cult what's going to happen there maybe i'll join maybe i'll make a fake discord and join i mean they're they're not a you know why why they shouldn't have a problem with that they wrote a bunch of fake papers to get them accepted so maybe i'll start a fake discord and just go in there and just kind of fucking try to up the ante a little bit and see if i get love bombed and then maybe we could do another fake discord where we go in there and we kind of push back against some of the ideas and see if that fucking funnel like ejects us from the funnel and see i feel like we could do our own um grievance studies we've had a lot of success people will come in we will look at their case individually we will guide them to resources or help them write a letter or practice a conversation they want to have and we've had quite a lot of success i would say if we get people yeah this is she's starting a cult that's like scientology almost
like we have you in and you have to fucking go over your your past trauma in this case it's like being called into hr and being like listen you got to stop commenting on everyone's sweaters all right you got to stop commenting on the people here's sweaters and they'll go into helen's discord and they'll be like well i need to write a strongly worded letter about hi i'm, I'm actually a sweater enthusiast they'll be like yeah you're just a, a sweater enthusiast you nobody understands your love of the sweater on a, on women at your office. I'm telling you, this thing is a cult. This is like a fucking cult. I'm not really going to join it. I don't have the time. Social justice ideas in a principled way and a knowledgeable way. We want people to be more confident to say, I don't believe what you believe. Mm. I will, I will absolutely with you in opposing racism, but I don't believe in invisible systems of whiteness. Now, how can people support your work? I know that there's a Patreon page for ARIO. What's the address of that? Nope. Nope. That's, that's where we get off. We're not, we're not letting them fuck chill their Patreon on here. So, uh, Helen Pluckrose did these grievance studies papers and was on tour, on a speaking tour with James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian. No mention of either of those two people in that 45 minute discussion, even though they talked maybe 10 or 15 minutes about her work with James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian. So I just wonder why that might be. And if it's because Helen Pluckrose was a very poor judge of character, which I think is why they didn't um, you know, bring that up because James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian are now even too toxic for the fucking skull measurers over at Colette. Well, if that's the case, and maybe that should be acknowledged and maybe we should think about whether or not we should take her word for it on a whole bunch of other stuff after having, after she, you know, admits basically she said as much on Twitter, <clears throat> she got it wrong on Peter Bogosian and, um, and James Lindsay. So maybe, maybe we should just kind of keep that in mind that she's not the best judge of character. And I think that maybe it's because she is a person who herself has very poor character. But, you know, the Very Smart People Club don't like it when we comment on the character of others around here. We got to keep it on the field and uh, keep it in the realm of ideas. So thanks, everybody, for listening to the Intellectual Dollar Tree this week. It was a bit of a, a trudge through here. I want to thank Polly People and Justin Freakin for the raids. Um, and, uh, yeah, check out our our merch shop. It's at eplex.store. This is uh, Boomers by Periscope. I'm going to change the color of the lights and... Uh, Adjust the content of my beverage. We'll be right back for the post game.
Sunday, 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 right here on twitch.tv slash Media. It's the Plex, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific and on into red light. We have the worst news in the week that no one else will cover. The Plex has it all. Conspiracy, right-wing nut jobs, Christian extremism, and Madison Star Moon. Tune in every Sunday at 7 p.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media and find our full schedule at Echoplex Media dot com.